Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is Eric Fogg. Eric is the co-founder and chief operating officer at ProdPerfect. ProdPerfect is the answer to fixing E2E software testing with machine learning and good operational design, as well as automatically building and maintaining E2E test automation by analyzing user journeys on web applications. Since 2018, Eric and his team have helped dozens of cutting edge, venture-backed, highly reputable brand name companies and their elite engineering teams to radically improve their software quality and deployment speed. During 2019, ProdPerfect grew over 20% month over month and raised 12 million for a Series A and are well on the path to a Series B. Eric graduated MIT with a bachelor's and master's of science in mechanical engineering. Prior to PodPerfect, he fixed and led operations in factories, mines, refineries, and hardware startups. So Eric, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Uh, awesome. Thank you, Cameron. That was a, that's a great intro. I, uh, I, I'm going to like take that clip and like make it my hype clip for the future. Thank you. <laughs> there you go. And I did okay. I didn't trip over that one as much as I normally do. <laughs> Funny timing on the fact that you graduated from MIT because just this morning, so I've been a part of an organization called EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization for years. For 25 years, I've either been a member or worked with them in 26 countries. And EO hosts a, um, a program at Endicott House, which is owned by MIT. It's out in Dedham. And it's not an MIT program, but it's like a, an MIT lab sponsored executive program for these, these CEOs from all over yeah. the world. But I was I was on social media this morning saying like, come on guys, stop saying that you graduated from MIT. You didn't. You, you did a three you know a, a three and a half day program three times you know over three years that was that was an EO program hosted at MIT. But you didn't graduate from MIT. And I'm getting all these people like blowing up the comments saying, yeah, like thank you for saying that. And I'm just like, it just <laughs> it's weird. And then I then I'm interviewing a guy who actually graduated MIT. Like, what was it like? It's funny, actually. I, I actually get to say I taught a class at MIT because um, wow. we have a well, we have a two semesters, four months each, and then a one one month January term, which is uh, mostly mostly like do whatever you want, and um, and the the real the real test. So a lot of a lot of grads will end up teaching, a lot of alums will end up teaching, and the real test is whether you get credit. Whether, whether students get credit for your class is like whether you're really oh, a teacher. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I actually got I I got got to do credit or I got to I got to give th- uh I got to give credit. We have a weird credit system, so I won't, I won't the number won't mean anything to anyone. But um, uh, on problem solving, on technical problem solving, which is a lot of fun. Oh, cool. And um, MIT was so so MIT was uh the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And uh, it's also probably still the most fun I've ever had. And and the biggest reason was that um, the biggest reason was that I think what, what makes MIT so special isn't even the professors, even though they're, they're doing really cool stuff. And the way you get you, the way you really get benefit from that team or that group is by doing research with them, which MIT is really good about pairing undergrads with labs to actually do mm-hmm. research um, or like, or like actually build cool stuff with them. Yeah. You know, the lectures, you can get them online for free, literally like MIT right, right. posts them all for free. So why go? That's, that's reason one. And reason two is the other students. Cause, cause ultimately MIT does a very good job of recruiting people who are just intellectually curious. Yeah. Um, and so, and so like we'd stay up late, uh, 
you know, we'd stay up till 3 a.m. just like talking about like weird problems that we're running into in like aerospace or, or you know, like I, I almost wish I was there now with the aerospace team, like watching, right. um, you know, watching SpaceX do what they're doing and, and learn a little bit more about like how the Falcon engines work. Cause I'm, I'm out of the, I'm out of it these days. So, so it's all like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just like every, you know, every grandma at home watching, like, I have no idea how this works, but this right. is really cool. Um, uh, but it was, it was a blast. It and feels, it feels like you, it's almost like you'd be like at the, the, the lunchroom at a hackathon or at, um, I don't know, like, yeah, just like the, the super smart, fucking cool, <laughs> you know, um, driven, but kind of game on like everybody, like no one was there just because they had to be nobody was putting in time like these, these everybody was there on purpose. Yes. And I wouldn't say cool. Definitely, definitely like a nerd crowd. No, but, but that's, but I like that. Like I am, I'm there. I'm there. Um, I, yeah, I, I like the nerd crowd. There's something that's, that's pretty amazing. In fact, one of my favorite um, leaders that I ever met was um, this woman who was the head of iRobot and she was out of the MIT labs program. Indeed. She lived very close to Endicott house and she came and spoke to our, um, the EO program that was being held there. And she was fascinating. And, and um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. So how did you go from MIT to to into a COO role? What was your what was your path? Great. Yeah. So I, I thought I was going to graduate and be an engineer. And the reason ultimately, the reason I didn't is a, it's it's pure coincidence. I graduated in 2009. Um, so I was job hunting in 2008. And that was a bad time to job hunt, yeah. even with a tech degree. And uh, so I wasn't hired into these, um, I wasn't able to get hired into like Ford Motor Company or, or anything like that. Um, you know, I even, I was trying like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, and just kept getting, hitting a wall. And part of it was just to be honest, I wasn't the best engineer out of the bunch. Okay. Um, kind of far from it, which, uh, which was humbling. And um, as they say, like those who can do and those who can't teach. So I went into consulting. And uh, the consulting firm that I worked for called Stroud, um, they were they were big on like, hey, we only recruit elite talent. So it was like MIT, Columbia, Cornell, um, didn't bother with anything else. And <laughs> so they had they had a booth, uh, they had a booth at, MI, at MIT's career fair. I, I talked to them, got along with them really well, ended up joining. And, and my operations path started because, you know, we were using our engineering skills, but we were running, flying around the country, fixing factories. So I was working in, I mean, uh, consumer packaged goods. I was like literally helping companies fill milk bottles faster, um, paint and chemical coatings, uh, uh, aerospace construction, refineries, mining. Um, cool. got, got great stories from like being up in Northern Alberta and like freezing my face off. And, and I, what we had to learn, what we were good at was engineering. What we had to learn was how to implement change in an organization, right? How to understand what's the process by which someone is trying to, for example, turn plastic and a silo full of milk into a milk bottle mm. or a bottle of milk um, and learn that process, understand it deeply in a few weeks, become the smartest person in the room on that process um, right. and then be able to break it down and analyze it to crank 20% more out of it or something. And the hardest part about that wasn't the analysis. And often it was the case that there was someone at the organization that was smart enough to figure this out on their own. It's that there were organizational flaws holding that organization back from being able to make these improvements themselves. And so, so we kind of had to learn on the job how to be 
great operational management leaders, right? How to implement mm, change sure. and how to lead people, especially without authority. Um, and so, you know, of course, became experts in developing good KPIs, um, in enforcing good accountability. Um, and, and six years of that taught me, I, you know, I believe what I needed to know to, um, to do it a little bit myself. And I got poached out of consulting by uh, an MIT friend to actually work on a hardware startup. Uh, we were doing helmet share for uh, helmet share for bike share. Didn't end up taking off, but you know my job was to my job was to sell it and to figure out how to manufacture it at scale. And um, and the you know of course the skills I learned there were were really helpful. And of course sure. I was wildly unqualified and underprepared at the time, but that's how startups work. That's so nice. cut my teeth there. I'm I'm thinking back to when you said like all these factories that you got to work in and and how do you is it because you're from the outside that you can see outside of the box and you can see the problem from completely different perspectives whereas the people inside are too close to the issue at times is that part of it it helps it's a big part of it although you can't take anyone and do that and some of what some of what Stroud was so exceptional at and this will turn into a, a recruiting ad for Stroud um was was teaching what Stroud actually has a, their own their own sort of way like any good consulting firm does um, but the fierceness and rigor by which we broke down a problem into parts, which I think having outside eyes is necessary to do that, but it is insufficient. Um, but by being able to break this problem, you know, these problems down into parts, focus, we were big on using the Pareto graph, right? And focusing on like, what's our 80-20 opportunity. Yeah. Um, uh, being able to do that, uh, being able to do that was, was how we would identify of the thousand things going wrong in a factory that are on fire at every given moment, right, which what ones? are the one or two that matter? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, it's true. Cause there's so many things you could be fixing and optimizing inside of the company. It's I, I, I never even call it Pareto, but you're right. I just call it like the, the low hanging fruit. Like which exactly. are the ones that are the easiest things that are going to, it's almost, have you ever heard the saying that small hinges swing big doors? I have. That was one that really got to me too. It's like that small couple little things that you fix that could make massive differences inside an organization was a, a, an interesting kind of, um, I guess, mental construct that I saw. So so tell what's prod what's prod perfect and then what is um e to e yeah e software testing yeah so so the dirty secret of prod perfect that's becoming less of a secret is that i'm not a software engineer and so i got pulled in to help run the operations at a software engineering company deep tech stuff right um going into machine learning and and um what prod perfect is doing is taking this old process of testing software um, which I'll explain in a second, and uh, and and getting machines to do it rather than humans. So the old way of doing it, um, and by old I mean all but a few dozen companies in the world do it this way, is <laughs> you actually hire software engineers to write code to test other software engineers' code, um, and there are levels at which this makes sense. I'm going to keep it a little bit abstract, but explaining end-to-end -end testing, EDE, which means end-to-end -end testing, helps a lot. End-to-end -end testing is uh, is actually launching a launching the application on a browser, launching the software, you know, on the web with a server, and pretending that you're a user. So sending through a bot that pretends you're a user wow. to to test to test it. And so what normally happens is to write these tests, you have engineers get together and they say, "What are we going to test?" So they have to yeah. just come up with it on their own. Yeah. Hope they get a good set of tests that are representative of user behavior. Um, write them themselves. And then every time the application changes, they have to update it. So companies are spending like 20, 25% of their budget on just this. 
Um, and it doesn't work all that well because software engineers don't actually know how users use the, use the application. So what we're doing to shortcut that whole process is we're just collecting product analytics data. So if you know like Google Analytics, it tracks what you do kinda. Yeah, um, yeah. And so we can track what people do kinda. The machine learning magic is in analyzing that and then being able to pivot, convert that over to end-to-end -end tests, skipping the whole, you know, you need a quarter or a fifth of your engineers to be doing this work. Wow. We're just able to do it ourselves. Those engineers can now write product rather than tests. That's crazy. Like I, I think 20 years ago, I did something like this on a very scaled down version. I, I'd come in as the second in command at 1-800-GOT-JUNK and we had to test our internal software that we'd built to run all of our trucks and franchises. So we wrote a list of about 50 different processes that the user would have to do. And we stood behind them with a video camera and we filmed them <laughs> um, and we just watched that. You know, we watched our call center agents using it. We're like, oh, that sucks. What the fuck are they doing over there? Why are they yep. doing that? Like, that's ridiculous. And, and we just learned we kind of hacked our way through it. So this is so you're doing this at a much more sophisticated level, but you're using machine learning and the computer is doing it. Who are your clients? They're typically they're venture backed software engineering companies who, who are building web applications that are either the product itself or how they sell their product. So SaaS companies are big with us. Um, E-commerce and retail companies are big with us, but even like banks and insurance, I, th I think fundamentally, you know, it, it's becoming more true that any company at scale is a software company in addition to other stuff. And if they're mm -hmm. deploying code to the web that users need to be able to use without running into bugs, um, they need to test it. And uh, and so it's, what's actually pretty cool about the market opportunity for us is that we're somewhat industry agnostic. Yeah. Um, and so it's really a job function that we're, that we're selling to. And it's the software engineering job function, which is becoming, you know, which, you know, every fortune 500 has one. Um, and so we get to, we have a, we have a big market opportunity, uh, no real competition, and uh, so we're just this like crazy land grab, which means, which is like, I think the hardest part of my job is, is just like helping is, is being able to focus rather than get right. spread out over everything. And is this the kind of thing that will exist for, you know, all medium sized companies in 10 years? Like that's, that's certainly my hypothesis is that, um, is, is that there are other, there are analogous software in like in industry changes in medium, small and medium businesses, um, that that have that they've gone through over the past five to ten years. A big one is moving from having your own mainframe and IT team right. to paying Amazon, Microsoft, or Google to maintain all that for you. Infrastructure as a service, just cut them a check. Don't have an IT team. Similarly, we believe that that another trend is testing is something that machines are going to be better than humans and do, at doing um, already are, but are going to become much better in a few years. Um, and instead of you know, instead of your testing team, you know, the analogy to the IT team, um, you just you just use a machine system that's, you know, learned on thousands and thousands of applications how to test it well to test yours as well. That's really um, cool. It's just, it just makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I was reading recently about um, how they're now using machine learning to teach computers how to play games. And they said now within a 24 hour period, a computer can learn and be the best in the world at any two person game that exists. Of course, with, with, with without teaching it how it'll teach itself what the game is and how to even play it. It's crazy. So you said that when you were doing all this stuff with these um, these factories all over the world and, and up in northern Canada, uh, you saw a lot of organizational flaws. What, what were some of the organizational flaws? If you bring it down to bring it down to like the small to medium enterprise level, like the 20 to 200 person companies, what are some organizational flaws that you saw on the bigger level, macro level that maybe the 
you know, the small to medium enterprise can benefit from avoiding or fixing. Yeah. I think the biggest one by far is large organizations are very bad at recognizing and rewarding initiative and talent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had a lot of like smart people who, um, uh, we were we were like this this like breath of fresh air for them because they could like finally talk to someone who um, who was like willing to listen to their wacky idea that everyone else had shut down, and what we saw so frequently was there was these organizations had built up this crud of assumptions about what was possible and what was going on. Um, a good example is one organization I was working with. They uh, they genuinely believed that they were mining oil sand up in northern Canada, and and there were people who genuinely believed smart people PhDs that genuinely believed that um, uh, clog that was going on in their refining of that oil sand was due to what they nicknamed dinosaur hair. Now they weren't sure what it is, but they said, oh, it's it's getting clogged. It must be in, this stuff must be coming from the ore itself. And so there's nothing we can do, right? We just have to wait till it clogs and then repair it. Yeah. Um, and you had people say, you know, you had these people raising their hands saying, maybe we can do something about it. But that that concept was shut down by this group who had this dinosaur hair concept. Um, it turned out that what was happening was was a of course in the process a foreign substance was being introduced inadvertently, right? And we were able to identify that and eliminate it. Um, and so it seems like this very simple solution. And and what is between organizations and these simple solutions that allow them to really accelerate um, is the buildup of organizational beliefs, assumptions, and just accepted way things are. Mm. Um, and the way that we try to avoid that at Prod Perfect is um, it's not through stuff like brainstorming or, or other kind of like fads of employee engagement. It's through identifying every opportunity in mathematical terms and force ranking. So for example, that clogging problem was worth, I can't say how much money, but a lot. People didn't think of it as an opportunity because they decided it was impossible to fix. Right. And, okay. and what we do at Prod Perfect that I think every SMB should do is say, if this problem is worth sufficient magnitude of opportunity and, um, uh, and we assume that we can solve it because we have talent, um, let's go after it, right? Let's break it apart and, and dig it up rather than find a reason not to do it. I, I love that. And I love quantifying the opportunity. I was coaching a CEO recently and they said that they had 30 people on their customer service team. And I said, well, at about $50,000 per person, that's costing you $1.5 million to have that customer service team. And he goes, yeah, I guess that's about right. And I said, but if you could actually fix the problems and allow customers to fix their problems on their own and have better FAQs, you could eliminate 30 positions. Even if you could eliminate 20, that's a million dollar year opportunity. And he goes, Holy shit. I go, why don't we spend 200 grand fixing it yeah. done? They eliminated within six months, they eliminated 20 positions because they fixed the core problem. Right. And before you talk to them, the assumption was just that the, w- the way that these problems get fixed for customers is through customer success. Right. Adding, more, cust- add- yeah, adding more customer service people too. It's like, no, that's not the issue. Exactly. So, so how do you recognize and reward talent internally now with Prod Perfect? What are you doing? It's a little ad hoc right now because we're a team of 25. Um, so the, the founders are very close and we're able to make some, some high-speed decisions. Um, the, way that we're, the way that we're structuralizing and institutionalizing is, of course, through, um, through performance reviews. But, um, but big organizations that are bad at this also have performance reviews. So 
for us, it's culture, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think culture is the purview of every COO. I think a lot of COOs hate it because it's non-numerical, right? So it's kind of scary. You can't have, well, you can have KPIs on culture, but they're always goofy. Um, but I think, I think, I mean, we are very, very fierce about having a culture of very high initiative. Mistakes are okay, right? Mistakes are in fact good. We're learning from them. Be transparent about them, iterate quickly and get help. Don't try to win alone. And this culture, what it does is it has freed people of these shackles they've had in the past of, um, of oh, if I make a mistake, I get punished. Yeah. Or if I ask for help, people think I'm dumb. And so if we take all that muck off, we're, we're going to see people with high initiative, um, you know, who are like naturally ambitious and driven and smart, take initiative, propose stuff, start making some changes. Um, Dan, my CEO, his nickname is Dr. Yes, which I learned later came from Richard Branson. Someone else said knew Richard Branson's nickname was Dr. Yes and started calling it, started calling Dan that because people said, can we try this? And Dan said, let's sure. scope it. Let's understand the risk, but yes. And, um, and, and we're very public about how our individuals win with that, right? So the first level of recognition reward that we do is just social recognition and reward, right? We announce, we have them announce and we have their peers announce and we announce to the whole organization why this person who like jumped up and did this thing and ran at it made a huge difference for the business. Um, and so it means other people are gonna do it too. A lot of recognition reward isn't about money and it's right. not necessarily about promotion. It's about people feeling like what they did matters. I also like, I, yeah, feeling like they did what matters, but I also like that you talked about like, it's okay to fail, but then kind of iterate, fix it and try again. And I, I was thinking about that really is the life of a software engineer. It's like, write your code, try it. Oh shit, that didn't work. Six lines are broken, fix those. Okay, three lines are broken. Okay, fix those two. Oh, it works. And it's just how fast, you, it's not worrying that it was broken and beating yourself up about it. It's like, okay, figure out what was broken and fix that. So you also mentioned the management and leading without authority is something that you learned from, from those past roles. That's a really intriguing concept that I don't think in 153 episodes anyone's mentioned. Mm. Talk about Talk about leading without authority. So a lot of you know, typically when we think of a leader, we think of a person who has direct reports yeah. and that person with direct reports has the power to fire people, right? Yeah. Which means that there's like fundamentally fear of you as the person who can fire people because people's well-being, you know, depends on you and, yeah. and their financial situation is in bad shape if you don't, right? So, you, so, so everyone listening knows all that. Um, and so how do you lead if you don't have a stick? And in fact, if you don't have a lot of carrots either, um, and you know, the short version is the short version is influence and persuasion in sales. Um, but yep. what you have to do to lead without authority is one, engage the people with authority and sell them, um, sell them on, on this idea of maybe we should recognize and reward, um, you know, the, the team, the team that we need, that I need to lead as the consultant, right? So like I'm, I'm brought in, I'm working with a team. Um, I need to lead them and, and like sponsor or, or authority person. Can you please one, like, you know, can you make very clear this mandate and two, can, can you engage in some recognition and reward for what we're doing here? Um, and it's going to be a lot easier because the big question. So when you're, no matter how you're leading, the question you have to answer is what's in it for the person that you're, that you're trying to lead. Um, I remember, I forget who it was, but some monarch, when 
when asked, why don't you order this person not to do something? The monarch wisely said, oh, I don't give any orders that I know won't be obeyed. Because um, this monarch recognized that people may not obey orders, even though I have all this power, because, because there are things that are more important to people than yeah. uh, even keeping their heads sometimes. Sure. And so similarly, I think when we're leading, you know, so it, someone with authority gets to be lazy about this implied, well, what's in it for me? It's keeping your job and keeping your paycheck. If I don't have that leverage over someone, I just need to put more thought into what's in it for me um, to the people I'm trying to lead. And ha like having a quick think about that, or God forbid, like talking to someone and understanding them a little bit better about mm -hmm. what are their internal motivators, right? Because it's often the case that again, the thing people want is maybe it's I want to be recognized for once, or just, I don't even need to be recognized, but I'm just offended at the fact that like this thing is broken and I'm not allowed to fix it. You know, I wanna make an impact. And so if you learn that about people, if you can tie what you want to be done or what you know is the right thing to do to those internal motivators, it's trivial to lead people. That's cool. I, I like that you said a couple of times, sell them. I used to say, sell them, don't tell them as a phrase that if you could sell people on doing it. And then there's also, there's a movie that I saw years ago um, called Taps and Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn were in the movie together. And Timothy Hutton was the leader of this cadet military group. And the kind of father figure turned to him at one point and said, they will always respect your title, but they need to respect the man. Meaning like he was in, he was in charge. He was the cadet in charge of this entire military school. So he's like, they'll always respect you as, you know, the president of your school, but they need to respect you as a person, as, as that yes. leader. Right. And, and that's kind of what you're talking about as well. So how do you recognize the internal motivators? What do you do to recognize some of those internal motivators? So surprisingly, if you just ask people, they're likely to tell you because it's so refreshing for someone that someone else actually cares about what motivates them internally. Um, and so I think people are actually surprisingly forthcoming about it and you don't have to do too much ninja work in order to get it out of them. Um, and to some extent, like people may even understand that you're trying to influence them, but they're not gonna feel manipulated um, if you're being forthright and transparent and authentic. So um, I think that's I think that's the the most obvious way to do it. I think some people are probably there's there's somewhere in there have been manipulated in the past, so they're once bitten, mm. twice shy. Yeah. Um, and I think the for those folks, and I'm even like thinking of a few from my past experience. Um, a lot of people will hide those, and and part of what they're trying to do is protect themselves, right? They're trying to protect themselves from you know the tallest blade of grass gets cut first. I hear that I heard that all the time when I was a consultant. Um, and so people knew, like, so people's internal motivators at that point weren't, I want to be recognized. I want to be flying. Yeah, I want to fly yeah. under the radar. And so like, how can you possibly motivate this person? They, they even think that all they want is to take a paycheck and go home, but they're not all that happy mm. because they're stuck for eight hours at this place that they're not doing something that's very interesting to them. And so what I tend to do is ask people, what they do for fun or what they find interesting for its own sake. Um, because when you understand what do when they're not getting paid, you have a good sense of what, of again, their internal motivators, right? What is, you know, there is something motivating someone to play bridge or to, sure. um, or to like volunteer at a local, uh, at a local charity and stuff like that. And it's from that you can start to understand, ah, this person cares about 
creating impact for the world. This person cares about um, competing. This person cares about solving sticky problems and having the satisfaction of that based on those things that they do for fun. Now, where the heck did you come up with playing bridges the first analogy? You've been hanging out with some old people. Uh, it's, it's because I read Martin Seligman's um, book, uh, Flourish, um, and it's about internal motivators. So okay. it's, um, he, he says there are these five things that people do for their own sake. Um, let's see, uh, positive emotions, positive relationships, mastery, meaning, and flow. So it's a way to break down internal motivators. Mm -hmm. Seligman is this old dude that plays bridge and it gets him in flow. So that's, it. that's what came to mind. Well, Warren Buffett plays bridge as well. Warren Buffett and uh, Bill Gates play bridge together online. Indeed. So let's talk about Prod Perfect again. I want to go back to like over the last two two years, you guys have done two rounds. You did a um, a seed round where you raised two point six million, and then you did your Series A where you raised thirteen million. What was that like going through those stages? What did you learn as a company, and how did it change the company? Oh, man. Um, it was hard and it wasn't hard for the reasons I think most people think um, you, you, you know, you never think you're ready until you get there, but then at some point you like, you just, by the time, by the time you go to someone and like look them in the eye and say like, you should put $12 million into this, into this thing. Um, I think the fear is like long gone. Like you have butterflies getting into the meeting, but as soon as you're there, you, re you recognize like, well, these guys have $1.5 billion of other people's money and I'm actually asking for a pretty small check here. And if you've ever sold anything, it's it's the same process. Mm. Um, so it wasn't hard for the reasons of like, of like fear or intimidation. What was actually really hard about it um, for us was, uh, was trying to find the right partner and, and trying to like truly suss out who these investors are and what they stand for. Because um, because they're trying to sell you as well, right? Investors have FOMO. Um, they want everyone to like them. They'll never give you frank feedback because yep. they always want to keep the door open to you in the future and they don't want to piss you off. And yeah. so, and so you, so during, until you've actually engaged with them and your, your incentives are aligned, you have to recognize that like, they're going to give you the nice version of everything. You can't have happy ears. You can't believe what they say just because they say it. Um, and so I think the hardest part for us was, trying to understand the people that we were, that we were dealing with. Um, we, we got, I think we got very lucky in a lot of ways. We, we ended up with, with some excellent investors who have been hugely supportive, um, who understand the ups and downs of startups, um, understand how hard deep tech plays are, um, and, uh, and have helped us find great people to add to our team to help us, to help us really accelerate. Um, I forget the second question. I know the third one was how, how did it, it change? How did it change your company? Like once you had funding, did it change the mindset? Did it change the way that you operated? Big time. Um, we were, you know, pre-funding, it was nobody had any expectations. And so like, so, so it, in some ways, in some ways it was the most enjoyable phase of the company because you're just free. Everything's an experiment. Um, and some of it's because you've, you've already let go. Like I started this company and I even told Dan um, when, when he recruited me to join, I said, you know, we won't be doing this in six months, but that's okay. Right. Because we're going to have a lot of fun. And so I was just there to have fun and learn stuff. And, and so in some ways that's always going to be the most fun part. And then of course, when money shows up um, you've got performance expectations, you've got people that you don't want to let down. And, 
And, and it's not even just the investors, it's actually your employees. So I think the biggest thing that changed is that when you get money, your team grows dramatically. And all of a sudden there are a lot of people depending on you. Like the investor, like the, the investors, I'm actually not too worried about how they feel about it because mm. they've got a lot of money and the yep. people who are investing them have a lot of money and they expect most of these to fail anyway. But it's the people the people that you look in the eye and say, I want you to tie your future and your financial success and your career success to me and my vision and my ability to lead, that's intimidating. And, yeah. and what it means is I think like the gravity of running this business got really heavy, really fast as we started to recruit more. Um, and, and we also had, the, I think the biggest thing that changed was that, um, I mean, this is something that's that's true of a lot of people, of, of a lot of, or of, of every company that grows, every SMB that grows is that it starts being very founder driven. And then, you know, very quickly for us, because we're venture backed, we had to let go of being in control of everything um, and, and pivot over to being a KPI driven, um, culture driven, strategy driven uh, company where, where our job is to make you know, make the big picture very, very clear to people, motivate them properly, make sure we have the right talent and then let go and let people do, let people do what they're great at and make a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and what that's meant is that the company is like regularized a lot more. Um, and, you know, and also that the nature of my job and Dan's job is completely unrelated to what it was three years ago. Sure. No, nonetheless, I, I, I guess I, when I said like, when I said the pre-money time was was the most enjoyable, it was the most enjoyable for working on the business. But but I think the the new thing that's come to replace that that like that freedom is getting to help people succeed. Um, that's the I think that's the most satisfying part of my job right now, and it's what I spend most of my time doing. Um, uh, and it's it's you know it's hugely rewarding. Sounds like you do feel the same pressure I do as well with um, when we recruit people into the company, you feel a massive obligation to make sure the company works out because you're getting them to stake their future on your business all of a sudden, right? It's, yeah. It's a huge, it's always played very heavy on me for all of my years. My first, I, I hired my first employees when I was 20 years old. I had 12 employees at 21 wow. and, um, and they were five of my friends moved six hours away to come and work for me. And I remember shitting my pants thinking like, God, these, like, these are my friends. And now I gotta, I gotta make sure that they've got enough work and they're successful this summer. And at one point they thought I was, I was making so much money that I was rich. And I was like, I wasn't making a penny at this point. I hadn't paid off any of my debt. I hadn't, I hadn't, I wasn't making, <laughs> really wasn't making money. And um, I showed them my PL. I actually opened up my PL and showed it to them. And all of a sudden they were worried we were going bankrupt. <laughs> you right, got us right. all on the same page. So you and Dan, um, you and he started the company together. You were COO, he was CEO. It's, it's been easy the whole time? No. <laughs> and I think I, I think it, I, I, I'm sure that was a setup question. Cause it was a setup question. Yeah. Okay. Cause, <laughs> cause nobody's like anyone who says yes is lying. And, um, and it's because it's because by by design we're such fundamentally different different people. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've read Rocket Fuel or yeah, I know uh, okay, Mark great, Winters. yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, Dan is a visionary to his core. I'm an integrator to my core. Yeah, um, we have very different ways of thinking about the company, and and a good example of this is that I'm thinking about oh my gosh, how do I get us to our Series B? How do I hit my goals for this month? Um, 
And Dan is thinking about, he's like, it'll work. 10 years from now, what I'm worried about is have we totally dominated the marketplace? And, you know, have we, have we radically changed how software is deployed? And I just keep going like, how can you think about that? Right. Um, we, you know, when, when every month we're burning money and, right. um, and so what it means is that there's, there's definitely at our best, there's creative tension that we embrace. Yep. And when we disagree, we go, okay, great, great, cool. Let's get into it. So how do you, how do you disagree and how do you embrace that creative tension? Cause we have, I run an organization called the COO Alliance and we've yes. got members from nine countries that are all integrators. There's no CEOs allowed. They all have very similar personality profiles to you and they heavily disagree and argue with their CEO. And they're also best friends. Like right. how do you, how do you work through that creative tension and those disagreements? And can you give us an example, maybe without the details, but sure. You know, when one might have gotten heated or hard and, and how did you guys work through that? Yeah, um, I think, you know, I look, I'll, I'll confess right now, like Dan and I have, Dan and I have like definitely raised our voices at each other at times. Sure. Um, and it's, and one of the, one of the, one of the big things that we lean on is being best friends. And we were best friends before we started the company. Mm. Um, and, and we were past that uncanny valley, right? There's a bit of an uncanny valley of friendship that it's like, you're close enough that, people can get offended, but not so close that you can get over it. We were way past that, right? And like at the end of yelling at each other once, you know, I remember this was years ago, we, we I literally said like, we need to hug, right? Mm. And we hugged and we just like held on to each other for like two minutes. Um, and with anyone I knew less well, it had been kind of awkward, but it was really healing. And so how do we deal with those when, um, and when we fight like that, what we then do is like grab a beer, play some video games, take a break and come back to it. And then we embrace our creative tension. And what we, what we do um, when we disagree is we actually have an exercise where we're going to write out all of the arguments for the other person's position. So not That's our own. Um, we say, okay, I, I write down, why is Dan right? Why am I wrong? And Dan writes down, why is Eric right? Why am I wrong? And nine times out of 10, we end up coming up with a third concept altogether. And we've been through this cycle enough that we now know, we now know that when we disagree, it's likely that it, it is likely that one of us is, or both of us, sorry, are missing something. Yep. Like each of us, each of us has some information or analysis or perspective that needs to be input into this decision in order to succeed. I, and that's why we write that down. I love writing down what the other person is seeing. I want to show you something, but I need to ask you a question. And anyone who's listening can't see this, but right <laughs> behind you over your left shoulder, is that a Captain America shield? It is. That, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I built <laughs> it myself. I, I do cosplay for for fun and, and relaxation. So I, I built that out of a sled. Um, and, uh, so I didn't have to do a lot of building. I didn't, ma I didn't manufacture the metal, but I did like the, I, I, I laser cut some of the details and painted it and, and added the, the strapping on the back. Amazing. Ton of I'm, fun. I'm friends with the founder of Comic-Con, the owner of the Comic-Con group and, uh, Garib Seamus. He's amazing, fantastic artist, but I kept looking at it. I was wondering if it was like Captain America shield or if it was the, a big wheel and I couldn't tell. So I want to talk about like when you're writing down the other person's perspective. And again, anyone listening can't see this, but you and I can, and I'll explain it. I'm holding up a book right now. What color is this book? Black. Are you a thousand percent sure? 
Uh, no, and I've read I've read Stranger on a Strange Land, so I know that I know that this side of the book is black, right? Yeah, and the right. other side of the book is white, right? Yeah. And and there's so two sides to every story that you could argue it's black, and I'm staring at the other side of it, arguing it's white because I can't see the other side. And I think the system that you guys are using, writing down the other person's argument, is brilliant. Yeah, um, so I, strong. I actually, I you know, I, look, I'm I'm. I'm a voracious reader rather than a genius. And, and I think that's the integrator way. I think you're um, both. So I pulled it, I pulled it straight from fierce conversations and um, Susan Scott talks about the beach ball um, yeah. where like a beach ball has four different colors. Right? right. And, and if someone sees blue, they're not wrong. Even though I see red, we're yeah. both right. Yeah. I just never just have a beach complete. ball. I never have a beach ball sitting beside me. So yes, I can't do that exactly. analogy. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to go last question. If we're going to go back to you graduating from MIT, you're um, you're getting ready to start off in your career. What uh, what cosplay outfit are you designing for yourself back then? No, I'm oh. kidding. Okay. Yeah. Do do that one first. But then what what is what's something that you wish you'd known at 22 that you know for sure today, but you wish you'd known back then. Yeah, the cosplay outfit I'm doing at 22 is Descartes from Blade Runner. Nice. Um, so uh, the, the real work in that is putting the gun together and I can never find an off the shelf coat for it. So I'd have to stitch that. Um, but I would I would want someone to be my Roy Batty, my like big Ubermensch um, muscly dude. But, uh, but that's what I would be building. And, awesome. and what I wish I was, um, what I wish I was, what I wish I knew at 22 Ooh, that's the one I actually have to think about. Yeah, it's really this. Um, so have you seen the movie Onward? No. Okay. It was uh, like I shouldn't say that. I never I could have watched a movie last night and I don't remember the title. It's a it's a Pixar film about like elves, about magical elves who live in like modern day. Um, and and like magic has kind of faded from the world. But of course, they this this kid and his brother go on an adventure to bring magic back. It's a great film. I cried my eyeballs out. Um, it's classic, classic feel-good Pixar. And, um, and one of the struggles, you know, it's coming of age, one of the struggles that this kid is having, um, you know, he's 16 and he's taking his driver's test or he's about to take his driver's test, but he, he's afraid of merging onto the highway. And of course, Pixar style, like the highway is super intimidating and there's just like, you know, endless trucks moving through. And at some point on the adventure, his brother has been shrunk to like the size of being able to sit on his shoulder by mistake. Um, and so, so the kid has to, you know, it's his big brother. So the kid now has to drive and, um, and he's, and, and you know, there's a crisis, they have to move and he's going up the on-ramp and you can see him like squeezing his eyes shut and he goes, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And mm. his brother on his shoulder in this little pipsqueak voice goes, you'll never be ready. Just <laughs> do it. And, uh, and then he like, you know, closes his eyes again and, and swings the wheel and he's able to merge. And, um, I will never forget that because I have we, seen that movie now. Okay, great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. 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 And um, yeah, it's the van that ends up yeah. the, the unicorn van. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I think you'll never be ready. Just do it is the advice that I would give my 22 year old self, except my 22 year old self would probably not believe it because everyone does such a good job of, um, of selling themselves as totally ready. Right. We, we need to project confidence you know, I do this in, in investor meetings. Like, of course we've got it all fit. Well, here are the things we don't have figured out, but I'm confident we'll figure them out. I don't know if we'll figure them out. And, um, and because if, if I did, we'd already be IPO'd, right? This wouldn't yeah. be an experimental thing. And 
the idea that you need to feel ready or that you need to have it all figured out before you get started, I think I see it hold so many people back, friends of mine, other founders, employees of mine. Um, and it's the folks that I see who, you know, they have to be smart, they have to be talented, but um, everyone's good at something. And, and when you like feel when you when you when you're like motivated to do something and excited and ambitious about doing something, but you're not ready, you just have to you have to let go of believing that everyone else who looks super ready and looks like they've got their act together, like they're putting on a good face because it's just bad form to to you know announce to the world I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but they're not ready either and nobody ever is. No. And um, so just do it anyway. That's amazing. I love that. I, I, I'm glad I finally remembered that scene from the movie too. He, he pops up and then there's some like woman on a motorbike, I think was driving on the deck. Pixies, above, right? Pixies. Yeah. yeah. Little pixies on yeah. a motorbike and pick a fight with him. Yeah. It's Super great. Strong. Great film. Eric Fogg, the COO from Prod Perfect, MIT grad. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I really appreciate the time. It was a ton of fun. Great questions, Cameron. I love your show. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com. <laughs>